Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. As we conclude the Our Father series here on The Faith Explained, just a few more words about how uh, the tricks of the enemy can actually help us to grow closer to God and become more holy, become the people that God has created us to be. In our last episode, we talked about all of the idols in our lives that try to, we try to prop them up to get us through the jams that we face in this world, but they're never up to the task. They can never do what only God can do. And as Scott Hahn mentions in his book, Understanding Our Father, he says, quote, idols make temptations necessary for us. For temptations serve to wean us from our dependence on anything less than God. Nothing less than God can really save us. What's the opposite of idolatry? It's Eucharistic dependence, our holy need for all of God. The temptations that we face are meant to humble us and make us depend on God to the utmost. That's why lead us not into temptation is the prayer of a Christian with a healthful sense of reality. It's a good prayer for weaklings like you and me who know their strength and know God's strength too. End of quote. I think that's really well said. And so that's the side benefit of entering into temptation is that God doesn't, of course, uh, tempt anyone. But when we do face it, we realize how much we need him and only he can get us through it. All right. So let's let's continue on here. Uh, just a couple of more remarks about uh, exactly how he works, how the enemy works to try to trip us up in this regard. As we mentioned in earlier episodes, deliver us from evil is better translated as deliver us from the evil one. There's actually a definite article in Greek there, deliver us from the evil. So that is in all likelihood a reference to uh, Satan himself. And this is how he works. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, uh, Peter writes, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Uh, he wants to bring everybody else down into the, the hell that he's living in, quite, quite literally. But he can't trip you up with respect to God's plan for your life. St. Augustine said this. He said, quote, God would never allow any evil whatsoever to exist in his works if he were not so all-powerful and good as to cause good to emerge from evil itself, end of quote. So, of course, God has allowed. God's not the originator of evil, but he did allow for the possibility of evil to exist when he made us as free creatures. And, of course, that's true as well for the angels, even exalted angels like Lucifer who rebelled, who chose to disobey God, who chose not to do God's will, the will of the Father. And that's how he became uh, Satan. That's how he became this fallen angel. And of course, he convinced one third of the angels to go with him in his dastardly plan. And they were swept down uh, from heaven like stars from the sky, as it says in the book of Revelation. With his tail, the great dragon swept down a third of the stars of the sky. That's always been seen as a reference to one third of the angels cooperating with Satan in his rebellion. So no matter what he tries to do to you and to me, God can bring good out of it. Why? And St. Augustine explained it really well. Because God is all-powerful. He's also all-good. And so, a, a really perfect example of this, about how the devil can never defeat God, 
when it comes to our own lives and also the grand sweep of human history, we look at what happened on the cross. Think about it. People killed God. The divine son of God was tortured, brutalized, murdered. But through that most evil of events, the greatest good came out of it. This is God bringing good out of evil. That is our salvation. That's the source of our redemption. Here's how the Catechism puts it. In paragraph 312, it says, In time, we can discover that God in his almighty providence can bring a good from the consequences of an evil, even a moral evil, that's caused by one of his creatures. Joseph, and then it quotes uh, the book of Genesis, It was not you, said Joseph to his brothers, who sent me here, but God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And of course, uh, this is Joseph revealing himself, his true identity, uh, to his brothers who had previously sold him into slavery. And through a series of circumstances that God providentially was watching over, Joseph became the number two leader in all of Egypt and wound up saving so many people, including his own family, from famine. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And the Catechism goes on to say in paragraph 312, from the greatest moral evil ever committed, the rejection and murder of God's only Son caused by the sins of all men, God by His grace that abounded all the more, brought the greatest of goods, the glorification of Christ and our redemption. But for all that, evil never becomes a good. And, and that's an important quote there in the Catechism that a lot of people want to say, and St. Paul dealt with this uh, in his letter to the Romans, that this concept that some people want to say, well, if God can bring good out of evil, then why not sin and sin boldly? This is what exactly what Martin Luther said, who touched off the Protestant Revolution. Sin and sin boldly, because it just makes God's grace look even better the more he's forgiven you from. And of course, anybody who thinks like that is clearly uh, not thinking with Christ. Because as the Catechism says, evil never becomes a good. Just because God can bring good out of evil does not mean that the evil itself is good. It just means that he's the ultimate chess master. You cannot uh, break his plan uh, for the world or for your own life. Uh, really, th this is something we have to understand really, really well. God is not the author of sin. And choosing sin so that his forgiveness might look even better is never a proper choice for a Christian. And a lot of people do think like that practically. They might not say, say so out loud, but a lot of people just kind of live their life on earth very much like the Emperor Constantine, the Roman Emperor who accepted Christianity, legalized Christianity, the Catholic faith, in the 4th century, but he himself delayed his baptism until his deathbed. Why? Because, well, just in case he had some more sinning to do, right? This is not the attitude of a child of God. And people would often do that because they, they were afraid that they would fall into some uh, serious mortal sin after baptism. So just, just to be safe, they thought they'd delay things. But you don't know what the future holds. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or in the next five minutes. It's never a good idea to delay uh, dealing with God, making your peace with him, and do it today. This is what St. Paul says elsewhere. He says, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Uh, it's something that we have to constantly remind ourselves for. And about. Well, Pope John Paul II, in 1986, he said that the devil cannot block the construction of the kingdom of God. He can't. 
He can try, and he does try, believe me, but he can't block the building of the kingdom of God. In Romans 8.28, one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, St. Paul writes, We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And yes, that is true even of sin. In all things, in everything, God works for the good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. When people sin against us, uh, when we fall into sin, it can't, it's never a good thing. It's, the sin is never good. Evil never becomes good, but God can bring about a good purpose out of the tragedy. And so this is, this is really what the book of Job is really all about. It's a great theme. The devil is sort of set loose on Job, his property, his family. But Job remains faithful to God. He never gives up on the Lord. And at the end of the day, Job comes out, in a sense, better off. Yes, those are real losses, the losses of his family, his property. Uh, that was a terrible thing. But Job actually grew through the experience. He grew closer to God. He became more loving, more wise, and in a sense, in a sense, better off than he was before. And Scott Hahn says, well, who should get the credit here? Should we give the devil his due? Except for God Almighty, nobody worked harder to bring holiness to Job than did the devil. But nobody wanted it less, end of quote. That's just such a great line, isn't it? That nobody works harder to bring holiness to us, even in our own lives, than the devil. He, unwittingly so. Nobody wants our holiness less than he does. He, he wants us to apostatize. He wants us to give up the faith. He wants us to commit mortal sin, to kind of cut off the tap, turn off the tap, turn off the flow of God's grace into our lives. And so he wants us to spiritually die. But if we are able to stand firm against the temptation, if we're able to lean on God, we can gain a great victory. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. And as Han points out, when the devil works in our lives, it's kind of a gamble for him. It's kind of because he might get us to give up the faith. He might get us to commit a mortal sin. He might achieve his objective of, of, of getting us to die spiritually. But it's a bit of a gamble because when, when he tempts us, the opposite of what he desires might actually happen. We might actually cling more closely to God. We might uh, be more obedient to the Father's will. We might actually continue on rejecting Satan and all his works and all his pomps. And we, like Job, might also become holier and wiser in the end. But, but this does not mean that we should be looking for some kind of mortal combat with the devil. Uh, he is of preternatural intelligence. Uh, he is a fallen angel, yes, but he is smarter than all the people in the world put together. We can't defeat him on our own. And so we, we need the help of our Lord. We need the intercession of the saints, the assistance of the mother of the Lord, uh, Mary, the Blessed Virgin. She can help us to defeat the devil in our lives, and she can stomp on his, on his head and crush the head of the stone serpent. That's what Our Lady of Guadalupe is all about. She who crushes the stone serpent. It's one of the meanings of the word Guadalupe. And so this is why we need to throw ourselves once again on the mercy of God, saying, I'm weak. You know, it's like that father who came up to Jesus. His son was possessed by a demon. And he said to Jesus, 
Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yeah, I, I believe that you can do this, but please help me because there's still parts of me that don't fully trust you. And this is what it's all about when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And St. Cyprian, in his writings, he really points out that it's a little bit like calling Jake from State Farm or Flo from Progressive Insurance. We need an insurance policy for our faith. Scott Hahn says, St. Cyprian points out that all of these petitions are kind of like comprehensive insurance policies. They provide coverage against moral and physical evil. Because when we've asked for God's protection and when we've received his protection, we're secure. Nothing that the devil throws our way can possibly work against us. And this is what he said. This is what St. Cyprian said. What fear does a man have in this life if his guardian in this life is God? That's a great question to ask ourselves. What are you really afraid of? If God is your father, if Jesus Christ is your divine elder brother, if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit living within you, what is there to fear? If God is, Paul puts it this way in one of his letters, in his letter to the Romans, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Who can be against us? And this is the God who truly loves us. I think this is, this is such a great battle to win in the spiritual life, understanding that there's really nothing that can defeat us. There's, there's ultimately nothing that can go against us in the Catholic life if we trust in the Lord. And the man who I think is probably the greatest living spiritual author on earth today is Father Jacques Philippe. I know that that's a big claim, but I really think his books are brilliant. And really his classic book, and this is something that, this is a book that I just need to memorize cover to cover. I've read it so many times and I always keep coming back to it. It's called Searching for and Maintaining Peace, a small treatise on peace of heart. And Father Jacques Philippe has a lot of great books out there, like Time for God, so many great works. But th this one is, is one that really speaks to my heart because maybe like a lot of you, I, I struggle a little bit with anxiety. I struggle a little bit with scrupulosity, and this really does help. It really helps. And one of the things that he says that we, we need to do is understand that, first of all, there's nothing that's worth losing your peace over. There's really nothing in this world that is worth losing your peace over. Now, that's a little bit easier said than done in a, in a certain sense, because when we get bad news, when bad things happen to us, uh, it, it is easy to give in to those feelings, uh, that worry, that despair. But we can't do that, because we need to trust in our Lord. When Jesus says, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. We have to understand that this is really happening. Jacques Philippe reminds us that these words carry the same creative force as when God created the universe, created the skies, created the stars. When he said, let there be, you better believe it happened. And so when he says, I give you my peace, you really do have it. It's really there for you to tap into. And one of the things that prevents us from, from losing our peace is having patience with ourselves with our own faults, with our own imperfections. And so this is, again, one of the benefits of temptation and, and even our stumbles in the spiritual life. Again, not that the evil is a good thing by any stretch of the imagination, but, but here's what Jacques Philippe says, and I'm going to quote him here. He says, when God, one has gone a certain distance 
in spiritual life, when one truly desires to love the Lord with all his heart, when one has learned to have confidence in God and to abandon himself into his hands in the midst of difficulties. There remains for him, however, a circumstance in which he often risks losing his peace and tranquility of soul, in which the devil frequently exploits to discourage and trouble him. It concerns the vision of his misery, the experience of his own faults, the failures he continues to experience in such and such an area, despite his strong desire to correct himself. But here it is also important to be aware that the sadness, the discouragement, and the anguish of soul that we feel after committing a fault are not good, and we must, on the contrary, do everything we can to remain at peace. In the daily experiences of our miseries and faults, this is the fundamental principle that must guide us. It's not so much a question of our making superhuman efforts to completely eliminate our imperfections and our sins, that which is in any case beyond our reach, as it is a question of knowing how as quickly as possible to recapture our peace when we have fallen into sin or have been troubled by the experience of our imperfections and to avoid sadness and discouragement. This is not laxity nor resignation to mediocrity, but on the contrary, a way in which to sanctify ourselves more rapidly. There are a number of reasons for this. Okay, so this is really, really important to pay attention to, that it's kind of counterintuitive to to think that if if sin touches your life, if you realize your imperfections, uh, the natural tendency is to want to experience a lot of you know, excessive guilt about this, want to beat yourself up about this and say, wow, you know, this is, this is not good. And you become discouraged. He says, no, what you've got to do is do everything possible to remain at peace. Why? Well, he tells us. He says, God acts in the peace of your soul. It's not by your own efforts that you succeed in liberating yourselves from sin. It's the, it's the grace of God, that God himself, and he only acts in peace. So the best thing to do instead of kicking yourself when you're down is to regain your peace as quickly as possible and let God act. He also says this, what's more pleasing to God when after you experience a failure, you're discouraged, you're tormented, or if you react by saying, Lord, I ask your pardon. I have sinned again. This is what I'm capable of doing on my own but I abandon myself with confidence to your mercy and your pardon. I thank you for not allowing me to sin even more grievously. I abandon myself to you with confidence because I know that one day you will heal me completely. And in the meantime, I ask you that the experience of my misery would cause me to be more humble, more considerate of others, more conscious that I can do nothing by myself, but that I must rely solely on your love and your mercy, end of quote. And I think, I think that's, that's a really important point because the fact that uh, we have the tendency very often to fall into sin again and again, that should create, it should create more mercy and compassion for other people who are struggling with maybe heavy burdens that we know nothing about. Uh, it doesn't mean that we ever excuse the sin uh, but we, we don't really know what, what the background is. We don't know what the motivation is. We have to judge the action for sure. What this person did was wrong. But we can't judge their motives. We can't judge their eternal destiny. That, that is something God has to sort out uh, with that person's soul.
And then finally, he says, you know, the trouble and the discouragement that we tend to feel when we fail, when we, when we look at our faults, it, it's rarely pure. It's rarely pure. Now, obviously, the, 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 the gold standard here when we're examining our conscience is that we should be sorrowful for our sins because we've offended God, who we love, you know, hopefully with all our hearts, our minds, and our souls, and our strength. But very often what we're doing is we, we give in to personal pride. We're sorry because we fell into it, and we're embarrassed. We are embarrassed. That is nothing more than really the sin of the devil. That's spiritual pride. And so the fact that we have faults, um, don't get sad and discouraged about them because the ideal image that we have of ourselves is now shattered like a, like a, like a mirror. I, I'm not really as holy as I thought I was. You should, you should only have the pain of having offended God in your heart. And so if you do feel that way, if you're excessively uh, angry and upset and bitter because you've fallen into sin, it could be pride. It could be that you've put way too much trust in your own strength. Here's a quote from a very famous spiritual writer, Dom Lorenzo Scupoli, who wrote a book called The Spiritual Combat. And uh, Jacques Philippe draws upon his writings a lot. Here's what Dom Lorenzo Scupoli said. He said, quote, A presumptuous man believes with certainty that he has acquired a distrust of himself and confidence in God, which are the foundations of the spiritual life, and therefore that which one must make an effort to acquire. But this is an error that we never recognize better than when we have just experienced a failure. Because then, if one is troubled by it, if one feels afflicted by it, if it causes one to lose all hope of making new progress in virtue, this is a sign that one has placed all his confidence not in God, but in himself. And the greater the sadness and despair, the more one must judge himself guilty. Because he who mistrusts himself greatly, and who puts great confidence in God, if he commits some fault, is hardly surprised. He is neither disturbed nor chagrined, because he sees clearly that this is the result of his weakness and the little care that he took to establish his confidence in God. His failure, on the contrary, teaches him to distrust even more his own strength and to put even greater trust in the help of him who alone has power. He detests above all his sin. He condemns the passion or the vicious habit which was the cause. He conceives a sharp pain for having offended his God, but his pain is always subdued and does not prevent him from returning to his primary occupations to bear with his familiar trials and to battle until death with his cruel enemies. So that, that's a really important quote from Dom Lorenzo Scopoli. It's, it's this idea that it's an illusion that, that comes to us very often that uh, if we feel excessively troubled after committing a sin, this is some sort of a virtue. Of course, we're going to feel some pain after sinning, but we have to be really careful that this isn't from a source of pride or presumption, having too much confidence in your own strength. So th this should never surprise us. Uh, this should never happen to us if we're humble. We, if we rely on God, when we fail, we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be upset, because this is a natural result of our weakness. And, and so nothing really, he talks about this in his book, Father Jacques Philippe, nothing confuses the devil more 
that after somebody falls into sin, instead of wallowing in self-pity and, and almost giving up, a lot of people do. They want to give up on the spiritual life when they fall into sin. They say, I'll never be holy. I'll never become a saint. That's what he's looking for. What he can't figure out, what the devil can't understand, is when somebody gets up off the canvas and they go right back to their life of prayer. Obviously, they go to confession if need be as soon as possible, but they don't stop praying. They don't abandon the struggle. They just keep trucking in a certain sense. And so this is how uh, our faults can actually work uh, for us. Uh, Again, the evil is never from God. It's never a good thing in and of itself. But God can bring good out of it and that we become more trusting, more humble, and ultimately more holy. Now, that's really important to remember. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. Well, after, of course, this last petition in the Lord's Prayer in the Our Father, deliver us from evil or from the evil one, there's very often the doxology that's prayed. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, that's not technically part of the Lord's Prayer. That's that's not in uh, the text of Matthew, although although in some some old manuscripts uh, it is in there, but it was probably added in later. Now, that's that's not necessarily the the biggest deal in the world. This is these are certainly great words to pray. This is what's known as the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. And and doxology literally means in Greek, the word of glory. Doxa means glory in Greek. It's the word of glory. And so, for, this is really why we pray the prayer. For, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. So, this is just a a beautiful prayer because the kingdom, the kingdom, it, it doesn't just Uh, come to us on the other side of eternity after death. The kingdom is live and in effect in this world right now. It starts in the church. The church is the kingdom of God on earth as well. And you say, well, it's not a perfect kingdom. There are sinners in the church. Absolutely. All of the parables in the kingdom talk about this. The wheat and the weeds, the catch of fish in which the the holy mackerel are kept and and some of the the bad fish are, are thrown out. But that's the way it is in this world, and it's only on the other side of the curtain uh, that the kingdom will be in all its fullness. But it starts now, and Jesus is reigning as Eucharistic King in his kingdom in the church right now. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this series on the Lord's Prayer on the Faith Explained show on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. That's all the time we have for today. But if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio. And I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. God bless.